0: Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Steven. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science to talk about environmental health, we have Dr. Sarah Evans. Sarah is an assistant professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so today, you know, I wanted to give, um, give a little bit of background, again, because I think... Many people are not really aware of what environmental health means. Um, And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about some specific exposures to a class of chemicals called endocrine disruptors. And I'll I'll get into what I mean by that um, as I I go through. Um, And so, you know, I think many people have become more familiar with how the environment impacts our health because this is a really big topic in the media. And at Mount Sinai, because of what we do, we get a lot of inquiries from concerned families and concerned consumers when they see um, headlines in the news like some of these that say, um, there was a study of plastic toys that found over 100 substances um, that may harm children in their toys. Um, The the wildfires in California are burning plastics and we're breathing in all of these chemicals, right? baby food has heavy metals. What are we going to do about that? And there are um, chemicals in our foods and in fast food like phthalates, which I'm going to talk a little bit about. later on in my talk. That's a chemical that I study. Um, And then we think also about um, even things that are not chemical exposures. Um, So this was another recent headline saying that excessive screen time is impacting teens' sleep and weight and activity levels. So when we talk about the environment, we're talking about, um, you know, not just the things that are chemicals, air pollutions, these endocrine disruptors, Um, but we're also talking about our social environment and and what we're exposed to in terms of um, our social lives, our lifestyle, our screen time, how much we sleep. Um, So we're really talking about a big picture um, definition of environment. And so a lot of people, this is a, a picture of what I call toxic soup um so you see all those headlines and you hear all this news um you know and a lot of it is really clickbait that's making you feel like i am living in a toxic soup that i cannot get out of and this causes a lot of stress um you know and i can talk a little bit about the fact that stress is a harmful environmental exposure you know we consider stress to be an endocrine disruptor. So it's something that affects your body's health, right? Um, so we don't really want that either. And so at Mount Sinai, um, you know, through the work that we do and the outreach activities, um, we really try to distill this scary stuff down for people um, to define, okay, what is it? What are we worried about? And today I'll talk a little bit about endocrine disruptors. Um, so that's kind of like the what. And then, so what, why does it matter to me? How is it impacting my health? And then the really important thing, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is asking now what, what can I do about it? So we don't wanna um, talk to people about these chemicals or exposures in our environment and the health impacts that they might have without giving action steps, things that are achievable and feasible and affordable Um, that you can do to create a healthier environment um, and reduce your your risk of disease. Um, So that's how I wanted to sort of set things up for you all today. Perfect. And so so at Mount Sinai, um, you know, I mentioned that I'm in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health. And we have uh, something called the Institute for Exposomic Research. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what that is in a minute, um, but I just wanted to emphasize that, yes, we do cutting edge research there. We have some really cool technology that I'll tell you about, um, but we're equally um, devoted to taking that research into clinical care. Um, so what can we learn about the environment that can help us um, treat patients better? And, um, and then we also do a lot of education and outreach. Um, and so um, it's really this, um, you know, how research can inform healthcare and also how it can inform educating communities and then advocating for, for policy change. So all of those things are really prioritized in environmental medicine. And, and that's why I really love the field because you can see how the research can be applied to protect Um, large populations of people. A lot of the work that we do in environmental medicine is really motivated by this idea of a new pediatric morbidity. And so by that, we mean that, um, you know, decades ago, uh, before we had vaccines, effective vaccines, um, you know, children were dying and afflicted by infectious disease. Um, But we've largely eradicated that and we have super healthy kids, but we've seen an increase in chronic disease rates in children. And these are just in the last few decades, asthma, diabetes, food allergy, childhood leukemia, um, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and autism have all increased at a fairly rapid rate. So now we have something like 8% of the U.S. population has asthma. One in 10 people have diabetes. Um, One in 54 kids are diagnosed with autism. And for boys, that number is even higher. So um, this kind of a rapid increase in chronic disease rates really can't be explained by just genetics. And people have looked at whether um, changing diagnostics could explain it. And it doesn't entirely explain the rise in disease. And so... um, We also know that there is essentially no disease um, that you can identify that doesn't have some environmental component. So, either the environment has, you know, some factor in the environment has been shown to increase risk of that disease um, or to increase the severity of that disease. Um, and so we know some of that. If you look at um, studies of identical twins who share the exact same genetics, um, one twin may go on to develop a disease, um, and the other doesn't, suggesting that the environment is playing um, a, a strong role in that. And you know that this sounds like bad news, right? We have all this increasing, all these increasing disease rates. Um, it's a huge cost to society. Um, but you know we can also look at this in the positive that. Um, if environmental factors are responsible for a lot of these disease rates, then we can modify those. So we can change our practices or our policies um, to reduce those exposures, and then we can increase the health of the population. So, so in terms of um, thinking about, you know, and Stephen, you asked about what are the, the main exposures that we're worried about? What are the things that really impact our health most? We do know from these large studies that the CDC conducts um, every other year on a representative sample of the US population. These are called um, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey or NHANES, uh, which is a really incredible um, wealth of information that's actually available online for free. Anybody can access um, this data and summaries of this data. Um, So we see that there are over 200 chemicals Um, in the bodies of nearly all Americans. um, And they look at children down to the age of three and find that many of those exposures are actually higher in children, um, which is concerning, um, and also higher in Black and Hispanic participants. One of the the issues with with sort of figuring out, well, how are all of these contributing to, um, to our health is that these are kind of low dose exposures Um, So there are things that everyone is exposed to through their daily lives, pretty much on a daily chronic basis, and then they add up so we're exposed to all of these chemicals at the same time. And so it's really hard to figure out how this combination of long term exposures is impacting our health. This is a big, a big puzzle. But the fact that many of these chemicals are detected in our bodies um, suggests that the things that we're doing and using on a daily basis are getting inside of us and might be impacting our health in some way. So one of the ways that we're looking at this, and I I mentioned that um, I work within the Institute for Exposomic Research, and probably most people have never heard of exposomics, uh, but you've heard of genomics, right? So that would be like the study of, of all of our genes. Um, you might've even heard of the proteome or proteomics, which looks at, you know, all of the proteins that are inside of our body. So the exposome, do you want to guess what, <laughs> what the exposome is, Sarah or Stephen? any, any thoughts? This It's just what we're exposed to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it's the, the, uh, you know, sum of all of the things, all of those chemical exposures that are, that are outside of our bodies, but also the things that we eat, Um, the air that we breathe and um, things like our lifestyle, how much we exercise, how healthy we are, um, whether we have social supports, whether we have a lot of stress or exposure to trauma and violence in our life, um, things like infections. So those are all the things that are kind of outside of our body that come into our body. Um, But then also how do those things combine with what we think of as like our internal exposome. So those are all of the, the proteins and the and your metabolism and the things that your genes do inside of your body. And so it's that combination of all of those things that we think is impacting whether you stay healthy or whether you go on to develop a disease. And again, you know, if you, you think about all the things that are in the external exposome, like our diet and how much we exercise and um, you know, whether we, we have a strong friend group or, or family supports, um, those are all things that are modifiable. So those are the, the places we can't really do anything about the genes that we were handed, but we can do something about the things that are in our external environment and hopefully improve our health that way. So this is the direction that environmental health is going in. Uh, it's trying to capture all of those things. And in the past, we kind of looked at one chemical at a time um, that we could identify. And in this way we're trying to take a snapshot of everything that's happening um, not only um, you know at one point in time, but across your whole lifespan. And how does that determine whether you go on to develop a disease? So how in the world do we do that? <laughs> um, That's <so. laughs> kind of so, what I was going to ask because it, I know I was like, how, those, how do you, with all yeah, these tools and all these things, how can you isolate something to actually, they give for a correlation? There's it, it seems like too many pieces to be able to do that. It's yeah. So one of the ways that that we need to do that is through you know new big data um, statistical methods, right? And so that's, that's one aspect of what we're doing. Um, you know, another thing that we're doing is trying to, um, find new ways to measure the things in the environment. Um, and one way that we can do that is by trying to trace history. So, so, you know, we know that, um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this as well. We know that, for example, the prenatal period is really, susceptible in early childhood and infancy you're very susceptible to to exposures but we in the past didn't really have a a way to measure for example you know if I get sick today nobody looked at what I was exposed to when I was in the womb or when I was a baby right like how are we ever going to go back in time usually we need we need to know what happened before the person got sick Um, and so we have a couple really cool ways of doing that and so um, one is through looking at baby teeth so when baby teeth form, um, they lay down a, a layer, they begin to form during pregnancy in the womb um, and they lay down um, a new layer on a fairly regular basis, a, pretty much a daily basis. <clears throat> and as they do that, chemicals get deposited in the tooth. And so um, Dr. Manisha Arora at Mount Sinai has pioneered a method of obtaining baby teeth and then he can essentially go back in time by dissecting that tooth, finding the layer that was laid down during, for example, the you know first trimester of pregnancy, second trimester of pregnancy, third trimester of pregnancy, and identify exactly when a person um, was exposed to lead. And then he can say, okay, this, this child who... Has autism, or this person who went on to develop ALS later in life, um, had these exposures, this pattern of exposures um, throughout development, or at this particular time in development, um, and we see a correlation between that exposure and, you know, their their de- disease development that happened later in life. So that's a really cool, um, you know, very much um, sort of earth-shattering methodology to be able to. Identify a person's exposures, you know, at least up until the time that that tooth falls out of their mouth. Um, And we're also doing, we can also do uh, this is a a colleague of mine, Alan Just, um, who, you know, I think would be really fascinating to come on and give a whole talk in this series. Uh, But he looks at satellite data. So he can work with NASA and recreate air pollution and temperature data. So he could you know, look back and see you know, what my mom, what the air pollution levels were or the temperature was when my mom was pregnant with me and see whether those exposures impacted my health today. Um, so that's kind of the going back in time uh, component. And then you know, we're also developing new apps and methods like this is a silicone wristband that can absorb um all of the chemicals that that are around you as you're walking around and then we can look at like what were you exposed to um right now in real time so those are these new sort of exposure strategies um we have studies that are looking at um this is dr Rosalind wright who does a lot of work looking at non-chemical exposures like stress um and so here she's they're they're measuring um you know the autonomic nervous system response in a, in a study participant. Um, and then she can combine that data with air pollution data, for example, and see how those things come together to impact health. Um, so that's sort of where, where this, this field has been heading um, and some of the really cool technology that we're, that we're working with at Mount Sinai to, to answer these questions. So, so this whole idea of thinking about exposomics and this, you know, all of the things that you're exposed to, um, also has to consider the time component. Um, So, not just what you're exposed to, but when you're exposed to that. And we know that there are um, some really susceptible periods of life. Um, I mentioned the prenatal period, also as you're a baby um, and a young child, and then even a teen, a tween, a young adult. And um, even, you know, during other periods of aging, like menopause or um, for the elderly, when your your systems are undergoing changes that make them really sensitive to environmental toxins. So, you know, if you look at the wrong time, you might not identify a risk factor. So that's why exposomics is trying to look across across time. And as I mentioned, go back in time and identify when exposures occurred. And so we know that there is uh, what we call the Developmental Origins of Health and Disease, or DOHAD, Um, and this was built off of um, something called the Barker Hypothesis, and so he looked at, um, you know, one of the the classic examples of looking at how early life exposures affect um, health and disease later in life, was to look at women who lived through a famine when they were pregnant and so they had very poor prenatal nutrition um, and their babies were deprived um, of nutrients and they were born very low birth weight. And the kind of disconnect that that happened um, when he looked at these populations was that These children then went on to develop things like obesity and diabetes and heart disease that we don't think of as being associated with lack of nutrients, right? We think of that as being associated with eating too much or consuming too much. And so what this, what these findings led to was, as I mentioned, this idea of the developmental origins of health and disease, um, where there's programming that happens prenatally. And so the infant that was starved of nutrients and then born low birth weight into the world was actually programmed to overcompensate. And so when the baby was born, thinking that it was going to be a, you know, environment that was lacking in nutrients and the baby wasn't going to have enough food, the body in the womb was programmed um, to live in that kind of environment. So when it encountered enough food, it actually overcompensated and gained too much weight and developed d- diabetes and developed heart disease. So this is um, just one example of how we know that you know, what we think of as prenatal programming and what's happening in the womb can affect your health decades down the line. And so it's not just what happens um, when the fetus is developing, you know, you know when, when you're an infant in the womb and what your mom does and what your mom is exposed to, but we actually know that the environment that your grandparents and your great-grandparents lived in can also have these programming effects to affect your health later in life. And so we think about this idea of transgenerational inheritance of environmental disease where, um, for example, um, a woman who is exposed to, um, we see this for um, some pesticide chemicals like DDT, for example, we don't, we're not exposed to that anymore. Well, we are exposed to that through the environment, but that's a chemical that has been banned. But our grandparents were exposed to that. And while it may not affect um, our mother's exposure or our our mother's health, it can affect our health. So it's sort of this skipping generation where um, when um, a grandmother is exposed to something that um, while she's pregnant with your mother, your mother's biology changes in a way that impacts her offspring, so you. So this is sort of a skipping of generations of environmental exposure. So we need to go sort of that far back in time when we're thinking about um, how our health is affected by the environment. We're susceptible in the prenatal period. Um, we're also very susceptible as children. And pediatricians and, and people who study children's environmental health always say children are not little adults. And that's for a number of different reasons. So, children's physiology is different. So, they actually breathe faster. You know, we think about three main routes of exposure to a chemical, uh, and that's by breathing it in. Um, by ingesting or eating it or by having it absorbed through our skin. And so young children actually breathe faster. And so they can take in more air pollutants than an adult. They also eat a less varied diet and they eat and drink more than an adult does. <laughs> we wish they were eating a lot of broccoli, um, but probably they're eating you know, a lot of Cheerios or a lot of apples um, or strawberries. Um, and so Whatever um, may contaminate those types of foods, they may have a, a higher dose um, than adults do. And then they also, you know, put their hands in their mouths, so things that are on their skin get into their mouths. Um, and then we can't, um, you know, we, we think a lot about young children being vulnerable, but we can't neglect teens and tweens who, um, you know, are developing habits for life, um, experimenting with things like um, vaping and e-cigarettes, and Teens and tweens are still developing. Um, you know, your your reproductive system and your nervous system, in particular, are continuously developing into your twenties, um, and so those those systems remain very sensitive to uh, exposures and um, you know through things like cosmetics. So teen girls and even teen boys um, tend to use more cosmetics or more heavily fragranced cosmetics or heavily pigmented cosmetics than adults do. And, you know, they're doing things like playing on artificial turf, which may have a lot of chemicals, have maybe poor diet, poor physical activity. So all those things, um, you know, continue to impact health, you know, well beyond the teen years. And, you know, I had mentioned previously that we see through those NHANES studies that CDC conducts that children are exposed to higher levels of, of many chemicals. And, and those are for the reasons that I, that I outlined above. You know, There are differences in physiology and then also just their, their different behaviors compared with adults. So we have those susceptible periods in time And then coming back to how the external environment interacts with the internal environment, we know that there are also individual susceptibilities. And so Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, said genetics loads the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. Um, And you may sometimes hear of this G X E. Interaction, which is how your genes interact with your environment. And that really dictates whether you go on to develop a disease or whether you stay healthy. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have anecdotes about when well, my grandfather smoked for 60 years and he lived to be 100, you know, he, for whatever reason, could withstand a harmful environmental exposure, um, you know, or you hear the same about people with a really bad diet or or lack of exercise. Yes, there are those people who who go on to, to live very long lives because it's not only the environment, but who you are and your other exposures that that dictate your health. And so this is, I, I always like to um, when I talk about individual susceptibility, I think it's important to look at environmental health in the context also of health disparities and the phenomenon of environmental racism. And I mentioned earlier, you know, not only do children have, have higher exposures than, than older people, we also see that um, Black and, and Hispanic populations in the enhanced studies have higher exposures to some environmental chemicals. Um, and they also have poorer outcomes in in many cases. And so the question is: Is there a link between um, those increased chemical exposures and, and harmful environmental exposures and health outcomes? Um, and the answer is definitely yes. Um, and so when we when we talk about environmental racism, we're referring to systemic policies and practices that cause these communities of color to bear a disproportionate burden of harmful exposures and associated illnesses. So things like the siting of hazardous waste facilities and sources of pollution, more likely to be near communities of color. We know that um, Latinx agricultural workers and their families are exposed to high levels of pesticides, personal care products targeted towards women of color may have higher chemicals like hair straighteners, which contain formaldehyde. Um, And all of these multiple exposures can lead to worse health outcomes in these populations. So when we're thinking about doing research on environmental health and improving practices and policies, um, we we have to really consider these more vulnerable populations um, in the work that we do. So getting into these more than 200 chemicals that are in our bodies, um, that are likely impacting our health, why, why is that even the case, you know? So we think that we can go into the store and buy a product and it's been, you know, comprehensively studied for health impacts and it's safe. So why is that not really the case? And so you might notice when you buy uh, a product like a cleaning product or a toy, or Stephen, you mentioned the carpet and the VOCs. um, Do you know what it's made out of? Do you know what's in it? Do you know what's coming out of it? You know, typically most of our products do not have labels that tell us what they're made out of. And even if they did, it might be sort of a complex laundry list of chemicals that we we can't really decipher. So there's really a lack of transparency that allows us to know what's in our products. And when it comes to things like personal care products, cosmetics, and soaps, there's no one verifying that what the manufacturer says um, are in the products are actually in them. And many things are considered trade secrets. So that's why when you look at your cleaning products or pesticide products, you, um, you know, may see the active ingredient listed, but then 99% of the products are just other ingredients or inert ingredients because the manufacturer is protected, doesn't have to share what those ingredients are. So you really don't know what they are. And then there are also things like byproducts and contaminants that get into your products um, that aren't necessarily measured and definitely aren't on the label, but many of those have been shown to be things like um, carcinogens or linked to cancer. A big trade secret in, um, in industry is actually fragrance. So fragrance, when you see the word fragrance, that could be over 100 individual chemicals. So just because something is on the shelf Um, doesn't really guarantee that that product is safe for use. And as I mentioned, we know that many of those chemicals that are identified in the NHANES and other studies um, get into your body. So they have the potential to do something. And so a lot of those chemicals are what we call endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So these are chemicals that interfere with how hormones act in your body. There are thousands of them. They are present in many everyday products. So a lot of the um, chemicals that make up fragrance, for example, have been shown to interfere with hormones in your body. Um, Chemicals that are in plastics also shown to interfere with hormones in your body. And one of the things that's really challenging about endocrine disruptors is that they're active at very low levels because hormones in your body are actually active at very low levels. So It's been said that um, a hormone is active um, at the concentration of what would amount to a teaspoon of salt in an Olympic sized swimming pool. So very small amounts of a hormone um, can have an effect on your body and very small amounts of these endocrine disrupting chemicals can also have an effect. And so they've been been linked to many different types of health outcomes, um, like not only reproduction, but also um, effects on the nervous system that then affect things like cognition and behavior, cancer, obesity. And so um, just to highlight the idea that um, endocrine disrupting chemicals can act at very low levels. We think of a lot of, in toxicology, people say the dose makes the poison. So when you have um, low levels of something, um, you have a very low response in the body. And when you have high levels of something, you have a high response in the body. So sometimes an endocrine disruptor or even a natural hormone in the body can elicit a high response at a low level but when you have a high amount of that chemical, you get a very low response. So it's the opposite of what you would think. And then it can get even more complicated where you have a medium dose that actually elicits the response, the highest response, but at low doses and high doses, you don't see much of a response. So it makes them very difficult to study but also shows that even though you might have a small amount of a chemical in a product that you're using, you can still have an impact on your health. So again, this is just to sort of show what the endocrine system is. So the the endocrine system is, is um, is a system of glands in our bodies that secrete hormones. Um, And so they secrete hormones into the bloodstream and hormones are sort of like chemical messengers. And they're really the master regulators of everything that the body does essentially. So a lot of people think hormones, okay, sex hormones like estrogen and testosterone, those affect reproduction. Some people might associate hormones with moods too. um, And that's true, but hormones also, as I said, affect um, your your cognition, you know, how well you can think behavior, things like attention and sleep, your stress response, even your immune system, growth, height, weight, bone development, and your digestion and your metabolism and your heart rate. So you can see that, you know, even though these are tiny glands, secreting chemicals, uh, natural chemicals, hormones at, at what might be low levels, they actually affect all of the systems in your body. So that's why you know, on the previous slide, I listed sort of that long list of health outcomes that are associated with chemicals that disrupt your hormones, endocrine disruptors, because hormones are involved in pretty much every process that you can think of in the body. So even um, you know, so so thinking about something really current, how can endocrine disruptors, for example, tie in with the COVID nineteen pandemic? And um, this was from a um, from an article that was written early on um, by Linda Birnbaum, who is the former director of the National Institute of Health, National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences, making the case that endocrine-disrupting chemicals actually weaken us in our COVID-19 battle. And so why would that be? You know, How can the, these chemicals that are in all of our products impact the severity of COVID-19? And that's because we see endocrine disruptors are actually associated with an increased risk of many of the things that predispose us to worse COVID outcomes. So things like obesity, which impacts more than 40% of the United States, cardiovascular disease, more than 48% of people in the United States are affected by cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, 11% of the US suffers from diabetes. And so these are all risk factors for poor outcomes in COVID-19 and also things that are impacted by exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals. So having all of these chemicals in our in our daily environment is really impacting us in ways that we might not have thought of. But I just wanna drive home the idea that when you think about something that that interferes with hormones in the body, you have to think about how hormones work. And so many hormone receptors sit on the nucleus of the cell and then can affect our genes to express a protein. Sometimes it's to express more of the hormone receptors so that that the hormone can continue to be active. There are the little endocrine disrupting chemicals, which can look a lot like the hormone itself. And so the endocrine disruptor can bind to the same receptor that the hormone would bind to and also elicit a response. But maybe that's something that you didn't want. Maybe you didn't want to elicit that response. And we call that um, acting like an agonist. So the endocrine disruptor could activate the same pathway that the hormone activates, but we can also see the opposite. So the endocrine disruptor can act as an antagonist and it can bind up the hormone receptor so that the hormone can't bind and do its job and block whatever that pathway is that the hormone would normally activate. So, so those are one example of how an endocrine disruptor could actually stimulate the response that the hormone um, mediates, but it could also inhibit it. Um, and then one more example, although there are several ways that this can that that these things can happen, um, an endocrine disruptor could actually bind up the hormone and prevent the hormone from binding to its receptor at all. So again, prohibiting. The the hormone response. So, you can increase or decrease the response of a hormone. Um, Sometimes people think, oh, an endocrine disruptor just blocks the hormone activity, but it could actually enhance the hormone activity or block the hormone activity through a number of different ways. So, I wanted to give an example, um, you know, something sort of tangible um, and something that people may or may not have heard about, which is a chemical that I study, um, which are called phthalate chemicals. And phthalates are hormone disrupting chemicals that are found in many, many places. There are actually, uh, at least 16, I think different forms of phthalates. Now they all look fairly similar, but some of them are what we call high molecular weight. So these are the the bigger, larger molecules. um, and some of them are lower molecular weight. And so they're found in cosmetics. Um, So they can act to um, enhance the color in a, in a cosmetic product or the fragrance in a fragrance product. They're found in air fresheners and perfumes. So these are one of those endocrine disrupting chemicals that are found in fragrance. As I mentioned before, they're also found in plastics, especially PVC plastics. Um, So those are the ones that are called PVC polyvinyl chloride or often have the number three recycling symbol on them. And those are a lot of soft plastics that toys are made out of like rubber duckies. Um, Also plastic shower curtains are notorious for being made of PVC and containing phthalates. Um, And so one of the challenges with that is that the phthalate chemicals are not tightly bound to the plastic, and so they leach out. And if you were to have, for example, a food container um, that's made of PVC plastic, then the phthalates can actually get into the food that you're consuming, and you can ingest it that way. Um, or you can imagine a child's putting the rubber ducky in their mouth, which um, is very common. Or um, phthalates can come out of products, plastic products, vinyl flooring is actually a big one and get into the dust in your home. And then you can breathe it in or a child might get dust on their hands and put their hands in their mouths. A lot of uh, studies have also shown that we are exposed to phthalates through our diet. Um, particularly in high fat meats and dairy. So these uh, chemicals are very lipophilic and so they tend to accumulate in, in fatty foods. And then- How's it getting a- in there? I, I'm sorry That's for disrupted. how's it getting in my food? That is a great question and we don't have all the answers to that. So it's um, likely that somewhere in the manufacturing process, where plastic tubing is used for example, um, or plastic products are used. Um, there may be, uh, it may be getting into the food um, or through food packaging. One, um, there was a study that showed, they tried to, to swap out packaged processed foods for whole organic foods. And they made a very surprising finding that um, participants in that study had really high levels of exposure to um, DEHP, which is very common in plastics. They couldn't figure out why the participants who were supposed to be eating the better, cleaner diet had much higher exposure um, to this particular phthalate. And they traced it back to the milk that they were using Um, and a particular spice, a coriander that they were using. And so what an organic, I think organic milk, organic coriander. And so what they think is that the probably tubing that was used to milk the cows or in the processing of um, of the milk at some point in the manufacturing process was contained phthalates and that the phthalates leached out and into the milk or something was ground up when the Coriander was processed in the fact in the factory that contaminated it with phthalates. So this is really tricky. We don't have we need um, you know better oversight and study of um, food production and better regulations on food packaging because the this is we think that food is a major source of exposure to phthalates. Um, and then the last the last thing is um a lot of medical tubing and medical Um, products have phthalates in them. Um, And so there has been an effort to replace those phthalates with something else. Um, But so there are studies that have shown that even very small infants um, are exposed to um, high levels of phthalates through this kind of tubing. And, you know, this is a, a sensitive period. And so we're definitely concerned about that exposure. And um, just sort of as an example of how we do these, what we call prospective cohort studies. Um, And so these are, they're prospective because we are studying people over time. You know, you wanna um, have participants enroll in a study very early on, um, in this case in their pregnancy, and then be able to follow them through their pregnancy and continue to follow the children to see how they do. Um, And so, um, in this study, which is called the Infant Development and the Environment Study or TIDES, uh, which is a multi site study that um, had close to 800 babies born in the study. And there are sites um, in Rochester, New York, um, at, in Minnesota, and in San Francisco, and in Seattle, Washington. Um, so there are children at four, four sites across the U.S. who are being studied. And so in this study, when the women were pregnant, we looked at their urine and at their blood. And I should mention, this is um, the, the um, PI of this study is Dr. Shauna Swan at Mount Sinai. Um, and so she recruited women early on in their pregnancy and then across their pregnancy, um, looked at urine samples and blood samples. So that's where we can measure chemicals and we measure um in the urine, uh, because they when they come into the body, they get fairly rapidly processed and then excreted as metabolites in urine. <clears throat> Blood, we also looked at stress exposure in the women through questionnaires and their overall health, um, and asked them questions about their product use and their diet to try to get at um, you know, where their exposures might be coming from. And then when the babies were born, And when they were one year old, um, we looked at weight and length. And in some places we took placenta samples um, and then looked at a really important marker of of hormone disruption, which is anal genital distance. And so this is a marker when measured in a baby that tells us how much testosterone the baby was exposed to. And so we can, we can look at that to see whether phthalates are interfering with hormones in the, in the child. And then a little bit later, when they were three years old, we looked at um, their language development. Because again, I talked um, earlier about how endocrine disrupting chemicals can affect so many uh, parts of the body. So not just reproduction and reproductive development, but also brain development. And then when the children were four years old and six years old, we looked at the child's urine, and we looked again at the the mom's stress levels and at behavior and cognition in the child, height and weight, and then also at their cardiovascular health. So trying to get an idea of of all the ways in which these children's health might be impacted by their environmental exposures that happen in utero. And so this is where we get to the so what, and this is definitely not the only study that has used these methods to um, look at the health effects of phthalates and other endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, but many of the findings are similar to what other studies have shown. And so what you find in general, when you look at phthalates and other endocrine disruptors after exposure during pregnancy is that Um, what you see are sex dimorphic effects. So that means that the effects that you see are different in males and females. So if you just did your analysis and lumped boys and girls together, you might not see anything, but when you separate them out and look at whether boys and girls are affected differently, that's where you start to see the effects. And that kind of makes sense, right? Because we're talking about a chemical that probably interferes with hormones and sex hormones and those um, are different in boys and girls. And then the effects are also time dependent. So we talked about the idea of windows of susceptibility. So, um, when you're exposed matters and in, um, in the tide study, we had, we don't yet, we have collected some teeth actually, but we haven't analyzed that yet so that we can really go back in time. But we did collect at three different time points, um, in pregnancy. And that's important because the brain and the reproductive system are developing at different times across pregnancy. So what you see, with an exposure in the first trimester might be different from an exposure in the third trimester where you have maybe a a window of time that has closed in development. So we did see effects that were dependent on when the exposure occurred, and then they were dependent on which phthalate you were exposed to. So remember I said there are so many different kinds of phthalates. Some of them are bigger and some of them are smaller and they come from different sources. And so some of them actually are more potent in terms of their um, disruption of hormones and their biological effects. And so we saw reproductive impairments in boys. We saw um, cognitive and behavioral changes that were different in boys and girls. Um, This included um, a delay in language development. We also saw altered um, sex stereotypical play. So we looked at play behavior um, or what the mom reported um, the child's play behavior to be. So, so, so our reproductive findings were that phthalates interfere with testosterone. So that's thought to be their main route of um, biological impacts. And a lot of that has been replicated in animal studies. Um, so we see a parallel between what we see in animals and what we see in humans. Uh, which gives you know a greater weight of evidence to to the impact of phthalates on development, and so the reproductive findings suggest that phthalates interfere with testosterone, the, the male hormone. And um, we see something similar. We, you know we wanted to look at another marker of testosterone, and people have shown that uh, prenatal testosterone is associated with how boys and girls play later, um, you know, whether they gravitate towards more trucks and, and balls and things that are thought to be stereotypically boy type toys, or whether they gravitate more towards girl more girl stereotypical, And so we saw some, some small differences in how phthalates impacted um, the likelihood that a child engaged in what we consider sex stereotypical play. Obviously, there are a lot of factors that influence what toys a child chooses to play with. So there are some limitations to that finding, but it suggests just further suggestion that um, that phthalates are interfering with sex hormones. And then there were also some associations with um, preterm birth um, in moms who were exposed to higher levels of phthalates and sort of separately from looking at um, phthalates, um, we've also looked at stress and found that stress can also alter um, some of the same outcomes like an endocrine disruptor does. So just to, just to show that it's not only chemicals um, that we think about, we think about other types of exposures that can affect development. And again, in, so in, this, in these studies, I just wanted to come back to this again, that not everyone is sort of uniformly exposed to environmental chemicals or experiences the same outcomes. Um, and I just put this here because in our studies, in the Tide study, we did see that, um, as others have shown, that women of color were associated to higher levels of phthalates and other endocrine disruptors than white women. And there's a lot of evidence actually showing that. There are policies and practices that contribute to this Um, and toxic products that are marketed to black women um, more than they are marketed to white women and black women are, you know, this kind of marketing results in a huge market share of um, black women spending money on ethnic hair and beauty aids. Um, And this is concerning because um, many of these products contain endocrine disrupting chemicals, the fragrance that we talked about um, and also carcinogenic chemicals. So that's something that we, we see also replicated in the, in the TIDE study. And so, again, this is correlated with um, Black children being more likely to suffer from health impacts like low birth weight, preterm birth asthma, obesity, and Black adults are more likely to get aggressive forms of breast cancer at an early age and develop cardiovascular disease. And all of those things um, have links also to endocrine-disrupting chemicals and environmental chemicals. And when you layer on higher stress, exposure to trauma, and violence in these communities, you also increase the impacts of chemical exposures on health. And it's really important in this conversation to note that this is not due to genetics and this is not due to income. So when you take those factors out of the equation, you still see these disparities in exposure and disparities in, in health outcomes. So we can get now to sort of the now what, which I think is good because I'm feeling like I can't do anything now. I'm like, all right, what am I drinking out of? (laughs) Yeah. And, And I think that's a really good point, Stephen, when I, when and I've only I only really sort of talked about like one chemical, um, one class of chemicals, um, and, and you know you get that toxic soup feeling again. Like I'm surrounded by chemicals and there's nothing I can do about it, or I'm surrounded by these harmful exposures and there's nothing I can do about it. And so that's why this now what uh, is really important. And there are a number of ways um, that we can reduce our exposure and drive change at a more systemic level. And so the first one, the easy one is behavior change. And I'll give, I'm going to give you some specific tips related to phthalates, but um, what's really cool is that we have studies that use interventions to show how effectively just swapping out a couple products or making a change in your daily product use can really rapidly and dramatically reduce your exposure. So phthalates, for example, and a lot of the chemicals that are in the marketplace today have very short half-lives. So that means that they're eliminated from the body pretty quickly. Some of the older chemicals that, that we were concerned about that persist in our environment would accumulate in our body and be harder to get rid of but at least the ones that we're we're looking at today, um, many of them are excreted within 24 hours from the body. So if you change your behavior within a few days, you can really rapidly reduce your exposure to some of these chemicals. And that's what um, many people have found when they either do dietary changes or product use changes, choosing, for example, phthalate-free cosmetics, we see a rapid decrease in, in exposure. So that's great on the individual level we need to go beyond that um, to pressure the marketplace. And that is actually a really successful strategy. So we've seen an increase in, for example, the cleaner beauty products, products that are phthalate free, um, that are fragrance free. Bisphenol A is another big endocrine disrupting chemical um, that I didn't really get into today, but that's one that's largely present in plastic. And so when it used to be in baby bottles and moms, caught wind of the potential health impacts of exposure to bisphenol A, uh, which actually interferes with um, estrogen most likely is its route of of, um, interference and has a whole bunch of associated health effects. So moms did not like that. They didn't want their infants to be exposed to BPA. And so they stopped purchasing baby bottles that contained bisphenol A and eventually, manufacturer said, okay, we're going to phase this out. Nobody wants to buy it. And then several years later, um, the uh, BPA was actually banned at the federal level from, from baby bottles. So that takes a long time. Uh, Stronger regulations are the best strategy. They can take a very long time to implement. So often, you know, starting with your individual behavior change, changing where you put your dollars, and then Ultimately down the line, you know, supporting policy and, and ultimately down the line, hopefully we get stronger regulations. Um, so all of those can can have uh an impact on decreasing exposures. And so when it comes to phthalates, you know, I mentioned some of the places where um phthalates are found, just using fewer products is a nice place to start. You know, what do you need, what don't you need? Um there, you know, are, are surveys that have shown that the Average adult woman uses like 12 personal care products um, each day. And teen girls are estimated to use something like 17 each day. Um, you know, which ones can you cut back on or which ones can you can you replace? Choosing fragrance free, as I mentioned, fragrance contains, you know, many chemicals or phthalate-free, which are are much more available. Nail polish is a place where we see high levels of phthalates. So Choosing phthalate-free nail polish. There's something called three-free, five-free, eight-free nail polish, which um, which has several harmful chemicals removed, uh, and even avoiding nail salons where you can just like breathe in a lot of um, a lot of those chemicals. And making cleaning products that you know what the ingredients are. They can be really effective um, with things like baking soda and vinegar. And packaged and fast foods are, as I said, a big culprit for phthalate exposure. So choosing whole and fresh foods when you can is best. And then um, I also mentioned that phthalates come out of a lot of the products, building products, toys and things like that um, and get into house dust. So reducing dust in your home with just like a simple wet rag or a wet mop is a great way to reduce exposure, not only to phthalates, but to a lot of these other chemicals. So for example, flame retardant chemicals come out of furnishings and electronics and and accumulate in dust. And studies have shown, again, we have like good evidence for this actually, that studies have shown that eliminating house dust is a way that you can really affect um, reduce your exposure, not only to phthalates, but to many other chemicals. And then, you, you know, there have been some really, some really great process, progress, um, in terms of shifting the marketplace, a lot of this has been um, spearheaded by an organization called um, Safer Chemicals Healthy Families through their Mind of the Store campaign. They've done excellent advocacy work, if anyone is interested in um, taking a look at that or participating in that. Um, and so um, just this year, they they did a survey and they found that um, nearly 70% of companies, big companies, many of them, um, have improved their toxic chemical safety programs. So that's so that's really encouraging where the, the marketplace is being influenced to bring safer products to people. And um, back in 2008, actually, the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act, based largely on a lot of the research that I described earlier that showed these endocrine disrupting Um, properties of phthalates restricted the use of eight different phthalates in um, toys and childcare products that children might put in their mouth to to less than 0.1%. So that's not all phthalates, but that's some phthalates. And we do see, um, if you look at studies um, from before 2008 and after 2008, you do see um, in a lot of cases like a 50% drop in exposure to some of the phthalates. So that shows that you know the the market pressure and and families making different choices in terms of their products has helped and and I think you know these regulations helped a great deal. This really only applies to toys and childcare products, so that doesn't um, that doesn't really help pregnant women. Uh, so we need we still need more comprehensive regulations and restrictions, because we know that pregnancy is, is really the most vulnerable period for these exposures. But so that, you know, I hope Stephen, (laughs) that that was some, not, you know, I don't like to leave on a bad note. So I think, um, you know, consumer pressure works. We have all this accelerating research, like I mentioned, that's happening at the Exposomics Institute and Emerging Green Chemistries. Um, The chemicals leave our body quickly. A lot of these chemicals leave our body quickly. So we can make changes that have a high impact. And then, you know, I never want to leave out um, that there are a lot of really good things that you can do. And we don't only look at how bad exposures impact health. We also look at how good exposures impact health and how those things can combine. Um, So, you know, there, there are studies that show that An enriched environment and a positive social environment um, and good nutrition can mitigate some of the risks of exposures to harmful chemicals. So all the good things that you're doing, you know, and for anybody who's listening to this and thinking, oh no, you know, it's particularly stressful when you have a child or when you're pregnant, thinking that. You've done something terrible. Um, No, you're probably doing a lot of really good things. Um, And, you know, the other thing is like you can start today, swap out some of the products that you're using. And so we have a lot of resources. I just wanted to give a plug because I told you that we really like to get this information to the public in ways that they can act on it. Um, and so we have, we maintain some social media um, at Sinai Exposomics and um, also a website. Um, you can look for the Mount Sinai Institute for Exposomics Research um, and find some fact sheets and infographics. And also um, we've been working to create materials for kids. So we have uh, some K through five Curriculum and story and activity books related to environmental health and another plug because it's October and it is Children's Environmental Health Month and um, the second Thursday of October is always celebrated as Children's Environmental Health Day and so this year that's going to be on October 14th. And there are a lot of activities if you go to cehday.org or you can um, find our resources. We're actually sponsoring through our New York State Children's Environmental Health Centers, an art contest. What does a healthy community look like? And so we are taking art submissions and we're going to be hosting some other um, activities. Throughout that um, Children's Environmental Health Week, and so lastly, um, just acknowledging that I, um, you know, all of the the work of my colleagues at Mount Sinai, and also our Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Unit, and our New York State Children's Environmental Health Centers, um, which are collectives of health providers and pediatricians with expertise in environmental health, um, and then we have funding also from uh, the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and our National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view and share the love. We're the rope, hammer down.